Our text today is Luke 21, verses 25 through 38, page 1387 of the Bibles in the Seats. So last week, as you know, we began chapter 21, and we mentioned how difficult this chapter is. I specifically asked for prayer for the second half because there's some difficulties, and I do believe that we had those prayers answered and uh, that I have a much better grasp of this text than I ever have in my life, and I'm going to communicate that as best as possible. This is Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse. We covered the first half of it, and now this week we're going to cover the second half. We'll start, and I'm going to, I'm going to start reading back at verse 10. So remember, uh, the disciples were uh, praising the beauty of the temple. Jesus gave that prophecy, well, not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. And then they come to him and they say, when is that going to happen? Um, when, what are the signs that's going to happen? When is the sign of the coming at the end of the age? When is the sign of your coming? He started peppering them with questions, right? And uh, this is what Jesus told them. And remember, this first portion is what we said happened in 70 AD, and then the portion we're covering today is not 70 AD. But this is what he said, starting in verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in, ver- and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish, but by your endurance you will gain your lives. So he's saying all that happens before the destruction of the temple. Then he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to his people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now he transitions here, saying that destruction is going to happen, then it's time of Gentiles. Now he transitions to the other question that he, they asked. Then he says, There will be signs in the sun and moons and stars and on the earth dismay among the na- nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees... As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Be on guard 
so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of the life of life and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon those who dwell on the face of all the earth but keep on alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the son of man now during the day he was teaching in the temple but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called olivet and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him Let's pray. Lord, we again ask for your guidance through this difficult chapter. Clear our minds of false assumptions and misunderstandings, maybe some that we are raised with or some that we are taught that are indeed an error, but clear our minds of those so that we can rightly understand the words of Christ in this prophecy. Make us receptive to the truth found in these scriptures. Bless our gathering with your presence. May it be glorifying to you, faithful to the text, and helpful for your people. Send your spirit to work in us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, given the complexities of this chapter, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this week literally explaining the text itself, explaining what it means and doesn't mean, responding to some errors. And I'm going to warn you now, uh, this is perhaps the densest material we have ever covered in a sermon. It is long and detailed. I don't know if that excites you or, or not necessarily, but um, my computer just froze. As if we need this to take any longer than it's going to take already. There we go. So it is going to be long and detailed. I kind of apologize ahead of time. Not that it won't be exciting or anything, but I just, I don't know any other way around it. I don't know how to cover this chapter without it basically being that way. Uh, Don't be discouraged if you need to listen to this twice, especially if you have to go out uh, with kids. Don't be discouraged if you need more explanation. That is to be expected, honestly. And that also means that we're not going to have the, uh, I guess, normal amount of time that we would perhaps typically have in a sermon for exhortation. But the exhortation we do get is going to center on what Jesus urges his disciples to do after they hear this prophecy. Because he gives an exhortation after it. And that is, be on guard, keep on alert at all times, and be prepared to stand before the Son of Man. So as we explain this text, listen with that imperative in mind. If you can keep that in mind, Jesus is wanting us to be ready. That's, what he, that's his exhortation at the end. So if you can keep that on mind, that helps. Now, like I mentioned last week, I think this is most likely the most difficult passage in the entire Gospel of Luke. And that is because it is his record of the Olivet Discourse, which is one of the most debated passages in the entire Bible. So the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are similarly the most difficult passages in both of those Gospels as well. Matthew 24 is probably the most iconic version, and usually when authors write about the Olivet Discourse, they'll go to Matthew 24 in order to examine it. Luke's version is a bit more simplified. He has some things that Matthew doesn't have. Matthew has some things that Luke doesn't have. And we're going to pull in a few elements from Matthew to bring some clarity when needed. I think putting them together and interlacing them where you see what is 
a fuller explanation, I, I think that helps. So we're going to do that when, when needed. And when I say it's the most debated, what I want you to be aware of are two positions that most people take on this chapter, because both of them are in air. One is the historicist or full preterist position, or uh, you don't have to be a full preterist to say that this, you don't have to be a full preterist to make this error, but what they do is they argue that the entire chapter only addresses the events of 70 AD. They say everything that we read both last week and this week is about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. That is false. That's wrong. You see that a lot amongst a lot of post-millennial reformed folks. Uh, they're within our camp, but they make that claim about this chapter. The other heir is the futurist or the dispensational pre-millennial heir. That position, which I assume very many of us were raised with, that argues that the entire chapter only addresses the events at the end of the world when Christ returns. And we addressed that a lot last week because we read those events of 70 AD and we said... A lot of people apply this to the end of the world, and it's not. This is actually about 70 AD. The historicists are right about some of it speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the futurists are right about some of it addressing the return of Christ. They're in two chunks. And we're going to kind of shoot the gap right between the two, and we're going to take the correct position, I would argue, from each of those, and ideally leave here rightly understanding this whole chapter. Now, last week, we covered the historic element of this chapter that was fulfilled in 70 AD. We talked about that and only that. What scripture calls a great tribulation. Matthew calls this a great tribulation, which we've heard that language, and we've always heard it associated with the end of the world, but he's using that language to associate it with 70 AD. And now we'll be covering the future predictions of Christ coming at the end of the age. And by saying that, I am answering one of the initial questions that we noted last week. That question being, does this passage contain actual eschatology about the end times? Is it only about 70 AD or does it, yes, include some eschatology? Or which which of those two is it? And it does seem abundantly clear, especially when you put the synoptic gospels together, that yes, this is, is indeed about Christ's return at the end of the age. And I'll build up that argument a little bit as we go through this. So it is an error to say this entire chapter was fulfilled by 70 AD. It was not. The prophecy we read last week was. What we read this week was not. The other error that so often gets made with this chapter is not seeing, not in seeing, I guess, the, uh, the entire thing fulfilled already, but instead seeing absolutely none of it fulfilled until 70, or uh, seeing none of it, I'm sorry, I'm already butchering this. The other error is seeing absolutely none of it fulfilled in 70 AD. And like I said, many today, typically dispensationalists, typically in generically evangelical churches, they read the entire prophecy as only speaking of Christ's return. But of course, Jesus is going to speak of his return because... Remember, the disciples actually asked about his return. When will be the end of the age and your coming? They asked that. So, of course, Jesus is going to respond to it and answer it. After Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, the disciples waited until they were out of the city. They were back at the Mount of Olives where they had been spending their nights. And there, that's when they asked him those questions. And it sounded like it's a grouping of questions, but it's four 
actual questions. They said, one, when will these things happen? Meaning, when will not one stone be left upon another? This destruction of the temple you just prophesied. When will that happen? And then they said, what will be the sign of that happening? What is going to be the sign the temple is going to be destroyed? We covered that last week. And then they also said, what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign at the end of the age? Those are two entirely different questions. And they likely expected that to be one singular event when they asked those. They would have seen the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem itself. That, to them, would have been like, this is the end of days. This is the end of the age. It's all coming to a close. Just as if, if somebody said to you that, uh, behold, the Capitol building and the White House, uh, these are going to be destroyed, then we would probably assume, oh, well, that means the end of the American Republic. It's the, the same kind of idea. But Christ actually corrects them. He, he, he answers their questions, but he doesn't accept the assumed premise that it's all going to happen at one time. So those that see the entire prophecy of the, in this chapter is only addressing Christ's return are likewise in error. That is also an error in this chapter. One simple way that we can see that is in those detailed instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples. He's saying, when you see the army surrounded, go flee to the mountains. Don't go into the city, flee into the mountains. Don't even go to your house and get your stuff, flee to the mountains. Now, why would, he, why would he do that? Why would that matter if it was about Christ's return? If that wasn't about 70 AD and it was about Christ's return, why would he give them those instructions? That doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but don't we read in Revelation 6 that it is the unbelievers who are the ones that flee into the mountains and the caves at the end? There he says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So at Christ's return, unbelievers are going to run and hide in the mountains. I don't think it makes any sense that Jesus would be telling his disciples to flee into the mountains with the unbelievers. They're going there out of the fear of the wrath of God, why would we go with them? What do we have to We don't have to fear the wrath of God. It doesn't make any sense that we would be in there with them and be side by side with people calling down the mountains upon themselves and we're there hiding? What? Why would we hide? They're hiding. Plus, dispensationalists are the ones that believe Christians are raptured away anyway. So why would they need instructions about where to go and not go and what to do when Christ returns. You don't need instructions. You're getting raptured, right? That's what they're saying. Now, I don't want to sound like, oh, those stupid dispensationalists. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say they're foolish or something. This is a hard text. It takes a lot of pulling together from other texts, and, and Jesus uses prophetic perspective, which is admittedly tricky. Prophetic perspective is a typical literary device. It's found in biblical prophecy, and that's where the prophets predict what seems like one event to the original audience. But it might actually entail several levels of fulfillment. Again, a good analogy that I've heard used to explain it. One, I think I've, I've used it before. It's like driving toward a mountain range, right? From a distance, it, it looks like all those mountains are together, and as you approach it, you know, one mountain isn't right behind another. They're actually miles and miles apart. And you drive through an expanded mountain range. And I, that's what prophetic perspective is like. From a distance, it's like, oh, it's all going to happen at once. And as you approach, it's like, oh, these are actually pretty far apart. Not only that, but the prophecies that we read last week, 
that we argued were fulfilled in 70 AD, those are still characteristic of the age. So we're not trying to claim that just because those signs were fulfilled before 70 AD, then they're not going to happen anymore. Like they're fulfilled, they're done, and they're going away. That's not what we're saying. As we near the end of the age, those things are still going to happen. We're going to see the same sorts of stuff repeat throughout the entire age all the way to the end. It might even step up at the end, but we're going to still see the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the persecutions, and the martyrdoms, and being brought before the authorities. All that stuff. The fulfillment by 70 AD doesn't stop any of those things from happening, even though the specifics, you know, about being brought before a synagogue or a, a king, you know, it might be different than that. It might be a different sort of official, but that stuff's still going to happen. The destruction of Jerusalem is called a great tribulation in Matthew. But the great tribulation is the entire period between Christ's ascension and his return. And again, that's one of those things that corrects what many of us were probably raised with. We are in the great tribulation. It's now. It's when Christ left all the way till his return. That's the great tribulation. If we read in Revelation 7 that Michael read, if you remember that, it is believers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who come through the great tribulation clothed in white robes. That's all believers. They come through the great tribulation. They kept their faith. They're saved. So don't get confused in thinking that there's some seven-year tribulation period. Again, wrong. That's false. The great tribulation started in the first century, and it's due to continue until the end of the age when Christ returns. In other words, tribulation is simply characteristic of this age. It's just going to be there until Christ returns. Tribulation is characteristic of our age. And notice that language we keep using about this age and the end of the age. That comes up here. Jesus always uses what's called a two-age model. And again, we've talked about this, but that is, there is this age that we're in right now. That's the entire period between his incarnation and his return. That's this age. And then there is the age to come. This age and the age to come. And the age to come is the eternal state that he ushers in at his final return. So when he returns... That is the age to come. The age to come begins and goes into eternity. Therefore, the end of this age is Christ's return. If you hear end of the age, that means Jesus just came back. He ended this age. And then he initiates upon his return the age to come. That's the new heavens and the new earth. So given that, we can see, even though they didn't mean to, the disciples actually asked Jesus about two different questions because they asked about the destruction of the temple and they asked about his coming at the end of the age. Those are two different time periods. One was about the fulfillment of prophecy that not one stone of the temple would be left upon another, which occurs, of course, in this age because Jesus said to them that their own generation would not pass away until those things came to pass that happened in this age and before they passed away. And the second time period they asked about was about the end of the age when Christ returned. And he answered the portion about the first time period already last week. Everything we covered was about that first question. What are this, when, is, when is this temple going to be destroyed? What are the signs of it? He answered all that last week. And in regards to the future time period about his coming at the end of the age, he gives us that classical language that you've all heard about the signs and the sun and the moon and the stars, dismay, dismay among the nations, roaring seas, 
men fainting in fear of what is coming upon the earth, the powers of heaven being shaken, and most notably, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I don't know what to tell you other than that is the return of Christ at the end of the age. That is most definitely the return of Christ. The clouds are where we are said to be called up to meet him as we return to earth with him. That's rapture. That's what the real rapture is. Christ returns in the clouds, calls up believers to meet him, and then we descend upon the earth in a triumph, like a parade of triumph as a a conquering king, and then he'll judge the nations. That's what rapture is. It's not going away and being away for a certain period. No. We go and meet him and, and, and come in triumph with him. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Again, that's the return of Christ. When Christ ascended in Acts 1.9, we are told, A cloud received him up out of their sight. Right? And then the disciples stood there staring up at the sky. They just saw Jesus ascend into the clouds, and two angels appeared to them. And what did they say? They said, This Jesus, who had been taken away from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You saw him ascend into a cloud, you will see him descend in a cloud. So his return in the clouds will be the climax of the signs that he mentioned. That is the return of Christ. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. Uh, I'm going to. I don't want to. <laughs> I'm going to. But uh, I, I, want, I want us to thoroughly understand that Jesus is indeed speaking of two distinct events. So let me note here further proof that Jesus says that the coming in verses 25 through 38 that we just talked about, where we're going to see him coming in a cloud and in power and great glory, he said that is not until after the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not until after the people in the city have been killed or led away into captivity. And it's not until after the times of the Gentiles. And we're going to use that phrase a lot here soon. I'm going to explain it. Which means that the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud, in power and great glory, cannot be his judgment upon Jerusalem. That can't be his coming that he's talking about. Because it's after that. It can't be both the judgment event itself and long after that same judgment event. So those that claim that this entire chapter is about 70 AD can't have it both ways. They can't claim Jesus returns in judgment in a cloud in 70 AD, but that he doesn't return in a cloud until after the destruction of Jerusalem and after the times of the Gentiles. That doesn't make sense. It's one or the other. It can't be both. So you see their claim fails there. Also, we know that Matthew added the words that Luke doesn't include there, but he does add these words about the coming of Christ. In the section that we read today, he said... He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. He says that will happen at that coming. The collection of the elect from the four winds. That's all over the world. Again, that is end of the age event, not something that happened in 70 AD. If this whole chapter is only about 70 AD, then they are forced to say that that gathering of the elect across the entire world has already happened. But I have more than a hard time believing that that was fulfilled in 70 AD. Where do you see the, co- the gathering together of the elect from across the world in 70 AD? If anything, the people were scattered, not gathered. 
They're told to run away, not gather together. The destruction of Jerusalem did not, in any conceivable notion, gather together the elect from the four winds. That is genuine end-of-the-age language. So the section we are covering today is definitely speaking of the return of Christ at the end of the world. Now, the signs themselves that Jesus gave are still mysterious, still mysterious to us. And it will be up to us to sort of identify them as they start happening in history. And that's very typical of prophecy that foretells cataclysmic events. If you read Old Testament prophecy, if we were in that time, that's going to be very mysterious to us. But when we look at history, we can kind of see how they align a little better. The descriptions are mysterious, and they often get recognized after they begin. That's typical. And then the next thing Jesus does after those mysterious signs... The next thing he does is he tells this brief parable. Now, I know I told you back in chapter 20, I said that, you know, this is the last parable we're covering in Luke, but I missed this one because of how short it is. But Luke calls it a parable. And it's a very simple one. Very short, very simple. So basically, when you see the leaves on a fig tree, the leaves on trees, you know that summer's right around the corner, right? Springtime means summer comes next. That's the parable. So as that generation would see the signs... For the event that they were going to witness, they knew that it was right around the corner. He said, this is what what you're going to witness before the destruction of Jerusalem. Know that the destruction is near when you witness these things. He's saying, look at the leaves on the tree, right? Christ's disciples in the future who would witness the signs of his return should likewise know the end of the age is right around the corner when you see those signs, a different set of signs. He speaks in the parable to both groups. The disciples that are going to witness the thing, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the disciples that are going to witness his return. That's the disciples in his generation, or that generation, and the disciples of the future. And he's telling them to realize the signs that they had been given. That's telling you what's coming soon. Followers of Christ knew the destruction of the temple was near by looking for the, the many things, including The city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies. They knew that. We talked about that last week. And followers of Christ in the future, that's us, will know his return is near when they see the things happening described in verses 25 through 27. Those lists of signs that he gave. It's a summary parable of of both events. He gave signs for both future events that were future at that point. So he's basically saying, Okay, you ask for signs of the destruction of the temple. You ask for signs of the coming of the end of the age. Here are the signs for that. Here are the signs for that. Now listen, when you see the signs, know that they're near. And he's talking about both events. But then we have that line that has confused so many. Because Jesus says next in verses 32 and 33, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And to bring clarity to this, I'm going to add the additional words that Matthew records of what Jesus said next. So he just said that. This generation is not going to pass away. But then he says, but on that day and hour, no one knows. Even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, nor uh, by the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Now, I read the full paragraph there because we need to get very precise here to prove Jesus was not, in fact, predicting his own return before the passing of that generation that he was speaking to at that time. He's not saying, I'm going to return before this generation passes. Because he didn't return in the clouds, did he? The generation passed, and Jesus did not come in great power and glory. And if he was, in fact, predicting that he was going to, then he would be a false prophet, and thus he would not be the Messiah, and thus he would not be the Son of God, and he would not be the Son of Man, and we would still be in our sins. So, this is important. This is important. This is what trips up so many readers. There is a large gap of time between the destruction of the temple and Christ's return. Almost 2,000 years so far, and still going. The disciples asked about each of those two events, though. So that is what Jesus told them about, each of those two events. So where do we see this big gap of time in the text? Is it in there? Can we justify saying that these are two distant events? Actually, yes, there is a gap in there, and we read it last week in verse 24, and it's easy to go right past it. Right after describing the destruction of Jerusalem, he told them, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the, time of the, gen- the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Destruction's coming, then we have this period called the times of the Gentiles. Obviously, that is an indeterminate amount of time, but it began in 70 AD, and we are still currently in it. Be sure that you do not read so fast through this passage that the two separate prophecies are slammed up against each other chronologically. They're, they're not. They're slammed up against each other as he says them, but not in terms of when he's saying they will happen. They are two distinct events separated by a long, undefined period simply called the times of the Gentiles. And after Jesus gives that summary parable about paying attention to to the signs that he gave, he makes a clear contrast between the two events that he gave the signs for. He uses that near demonstrative program, uh, pronoun, these. He describes these things that are going to take place before that generation that he is speaking to passes away. These things will take place before the generation passes away. And by generation, he meant there the, the normal Hebraic usage of about 40 years. That's a generation. 40 years will not pass away before these things take place. And since he spoke that prophecy in early 30s, 31 to 33 AD, then that generation certainly did not pass away before the temple was destroyed, just under 40 years later. But after mentioning that, Jesus then uses the far demonstrative program, that, to describe that day and hour no one knows. These things take place before the generation passes away, but that day and hour nobody knows. And between these things and that day is the, time, the times of the Gentiles. Just so we are clear, again, I'm beating a dead horse. These things, meaning the destruction of Jerusalem, that's going to take place before the generation passes away. In other words, it's going to happen within 40 years from when Jesus said it. But 
No one even knows the day or the hour, meaning the return of Christ in the clouds at the end of the age. That contrast is everything. These things are right before them chronologically, relatively speaking. It's within their generation. They're all going to happen in the coming 40 years. But that day and hour is still a long way off for them. Well after the times of the Gentiles. It's relatively distant compared to these things that Jesus described before the times of the Gentiles. And so what is the times of the Gentiles? Because that's kind of, that's the thing that separates these two events. That's our big gap. Well, the times of the Gentiles is very likely what Paul described in Romans 11. And we're going to call into usage Romans 11. In Romans 11.25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He calls that a mystery. And he doesn't want you to be misunderstanding that mystery. Here's the explanation of that mystery. Once was hidden, now is explained. Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The times of the Gentiles is the new covenant era when we, the Gentiles, are being gathered into the spiritual Israel of God. It's us who were a wild olive tree being grafted into the cultivated olive tree that is Israel. Because branches were broken off for their unbelief. There's a cultivated wild, uh, cultivated olive tree. There's branches that are broken off for their unbelief. Gentiles are grafted in as a wild olive tree. They're grafted into that cultivated olive tree. Unbelieving Jews were cut off for rejecting their Messiah. The times of the Gentiles, then, is the church age where the new covenant is being populated by people from all over the entire world. The wild olive trees are being brought in and engrafted. So, of course, that period separates the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Christ. That is what Paul calls in Ephesians 1 the mystery of his will. Again, he's going to that mystery language. That mystery is now revealed, what's he say? With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, the fullness of Israel being gathered. That administration is the church being used for the fullness of the times. The church is the administration for the fullness of the times, for the fullness of the Gentiles to come into the promises of God, which Paul even more explicitly described two chapters later in Ephesians 3, saying that mystery of Christ is, to be specific, he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we're in the times of the Gentiles. We're waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to be gathered in. We're being engrafted. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but the futurists, the dispensationalists, are going to challenge us on this. They're going to say, Israel became a nation again in 1948. So they say the times of the Gentiles must have ended. Israel's no longer trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Look at these Jews. They have their nation. It's over. 1948, times of the Gentiles is over. 
And from that historical event, that's where we get all the people that have tried setting dates for Christ's return. Those that currently hold the nation of Israel are not the people of God. I propose to you, the times of the Gentiles continues, even though in this day, in spite of the Jews holding the land called Israel, they are not the people of God. There is a nation there called Israel, but not the people of God. They cannot be called the Israel of God that Paul says in Galatians 6, in any sense. They cannot be called the Israel of God. Though they may be genetically Jewish, they are not true Israel because they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. You cannot be Israel if you reject Christ. Never forget that. They are the broken off branches. They are not part of Israel due to their unbelief. And what does Paul say in Romans 9? They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The New Testament interprets the the old, what Ken just said. What is Israel? We now know. True believers. Believing Jews and engrafted Gentiles by faith. That's true Israel. You cannot be Israel by descending from Israel. They are not all Israel who have descended from Israel. Thus, the Jews holding the land of Israel right now that reject the Messiah are included right along with the Romans and the Muslims and all the other Gentiles who have trampled Jerusalem underfoot during the times of the Gentiles. The nation of Israel is currently trampled underfoot by unbelieving Jews. They are unbelieving Gentiles. For in, in terms of the covenants of God, if they are not believing in the Messiah, they're Gentiles. And they are in that city, trampling underfoot the entire city during the times of the Gentiles. That includes the Jews who are not really Israel. And there are believing Gentiles who are grafted into Christ during the times of the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But that country that we call Israel is a religiously wicked nation. They very well may be a strategic ally for the U.S. in terms of the geopolitical scene, but they are far, far from being an ally to the true Israel of God, that is the church. They are not an ally to the church. If they even suspect missionary activity, if you're trying to get into the country, they suspect missionary activity, they will deny you entry into the country. If they find out you're doing it, they will kick you out. Messianic Jews are not even allowed to move back to Israel. They say, Israel says, all Jews, by default of being a Jew, you can move into this country. We are trying to collect you. But if you're a Messianic Jew, you're not getting there. Because they don't want them proselytizing Jews to be Christian. That's their reason. They are also pro-gay and pro-abortion, and the state itself even pays for some some portion of the abortions. You don't hear Israel supporting dispensationalists talking about that very often, do you? Now, I know homosexuality and abortion are not everything, but they are flagship issues that serve as as shibboleths of a nation mired in wickedness and following a dark, anti-biblical worldview. 
Those are hallmarks of a nation mired in wickedness. In spite of this, dispensationalists got very excited after Israel became a nation again in 1948. A bunch of prophecy pundits started popping up, especially in the 1970s. They saw that as a fulfillment of prophecy and ending to the times of the Gentiles. Thus, they said, okay, times of the Gentiles are over, and now that ge- this generation is not going to pass away until Christ's return. And that started in 1948, therefore, 40 years, 1988, 40 years after 1948. One of those date setters, because that's what they started doing, predicting the end after 1948, and one of those date setters was an author named Edgar Wisenant, and he published 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And they printed millions of copies. They even gave away like two or 300,000 of these away for free to pastors in the U.S. They wanted everybody ready for the rapture in 1988. And I doubt many of you have read it, so I don't want to ruin the end of it for you. But, <laughs> spoiler alert, Jesus didn't return in 1988. And so Wisenant and all the evangelicals that followed him, they apologized for their foolish date setting and they repented. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't. He recalculated, and he printed a new book about why the rapture would happen in 1989. Again, spoiler alert. Didn't happen. Seriously, that's what he did. That's what happened. And when that failed, of course, he predicted again in 1993, and then 1994, and all of that is based on the air that starts with seeing the country of Israel as the true Israel of God, which it is not. So wake me up when there's a mass conversion of Jews. Because then we might have something to talk about regarding Christ's return. Maybe that partial hardening will end and there will be a mass conversion of Jews near the end. I don't know. If we ever see that bulk of the new covenant growth coming from Jews instead of Gentiles like it is now, then we can talk about the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. There may be, one day be this mass conversion of Jews right near the end. I'm not claiming that or denying that, but the way it looks now is that Christ's return is what fulfills the times of the Gentiles, and that is what stops Jerusalem from being trampled underfoot with his final judgment of unbelievers. Now, I know that this has been long and drawn out, but I honestly could not stomach the idea of of covering this chapter and then still leaving without an understanding of what is being said. So I want to do something a little bit unconventional. I thought about doing an intermission, but I thought that might be a little much. This is what I want to do. Please pull up, if you can, the chapter. We're going to reread it, and we're going to walk through it and just give a little bit of comment so that we, you can literally see it come together. I hope this isn't too much. But we're going to reread uh, the, the middle of Luke 21, and I want you to see it as we walk through it. Now remember, the widow was giving her gift at the temple. So they're at the temple. They were going to the Mount of Olives at night talking. The disciples see the beauty of the temple. It's an amazing temple. It's beautiful. Look at these stones. They're huge. They're amazing. They're white marble and limestone. It's gorgeous, right? And Jesus says, well, not one of these stones is going to be left upon another. And then they question him, and they're basically, this is later, the Mount of Olives. They say, well, when's that going to happen? What are the signs that that's going to happen? What are the signs of your coming? What are the signs of the end of the age? So you hear those four questions. That happened later at night at the Mount of Olives. And then that's when he said to them, he starts telling them about, he starts with the destruction of the temple. When is that going to happen? And what is the sign of it going to happen? That's what he starts with. He says in verse 8, and he said, see to it that 
You not be misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Again, this is all going to happen before 70 AD. And there will, be a great earthquake, there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. And we went through all how that was indeed fulfilled before 70 AD. But before all these things, you, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and the governors for my name's sake. Like we said, that all happened in the book of Acts. It will lead to an opportunity for their testimony. Again, they did that. So make up your minds and do not prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. And they didn't have to. God gave them wisdom to respond to those kings, King Agrippa and all these other uh, officials. For I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. And they never did. But you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. We saw all the disciples get put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. Yet not one hair of your head will perish. You're still going to be saved eternally, even though they're going to kill you. But by your endurance, you will gain your lives by holding to the faith. You're going you're to preserve your life. And when you see, and now here it is, this is what the, the destruction of the temple is coming right here. This is what you're going to see. Jerusalem, surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is at hand. So all that stuff's going to happen about the bad signs, the persecutions, that's going to happen before, but then you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That means its desolation is right on hand. It's right around the corner. The leaves are on the tree. Notice those leaves. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of town. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance. In order that all things are written must be fulfilled. Christ is coming in vengeance. Get out of town. Death is coming via the Roman destruction of the, the whole city and the temple. It's not the end of times. Flee to the mountains. Woe to those who are with child and nurse babies in those days. There will be great distress upon the land and wrath of his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into the nations. That's what we saw happen. The people are murdered and sent into slavery all over the Roman Empire. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Destruction is coming. That ushers in what's called the times of the Gentiles. That's the whole New Covenant era. He doesn't tell you how long it is. He just calls it the times of the Gentiles. There it is. That's all going to happen. Then it's going to usher in this period. And then he goes to the question of the end of the age and the signs of his coming. That's next. After the times of the Gentiles that he just said, that's going to happen until it's fulfilled. Now to the, the second set of questions, the second event. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth and dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and waves. Men fainting from fear in the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And there you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. End of the world right there. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Salvation comes. Christ is bringing it. And then he told him this parable. This is the summary parable. I just gave you signs for two events. Look out for those signs. Those are the leaves on the tree. Look out for them. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know that yourselves that summer is now near. You know how to read those signs. Even so, you too. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. 
So there he's going to be talking about these things, um, the, the immediate things that are going to happen because he wants to draw this contrast. He's going to go into that. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Again, talking about these things, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that is where we pull from Matthew 24, 36, because he continues. These things are all going to take place before the generation passes, but on that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, nor the Fa- but the Father alone. So he just made this distinction between these things that are going to happen before the generation passes, but then those, that day and hour that no one knows about, the return of Christ. That's a very important contrast. And he goes on to emphasize that contrast um, after the parable, uh, after he just distinguishes these things in that day, be on guard that you not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness that the worries of this, and the worries of this life that will suddenly come on you like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Talking about the return of Christ, it can come on you like a trap, but keep on alert at times and praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, hopefully that brings clarity. Hopefully you understand the, the flow of the text a little bit better. And now we can close. There's still more. We can close here by going back to that distinction that Jesus makes between the two events that he just prophesied. Think about the obvious distinction Jesus is giving for the signs of each one and how his exhortation applies for alertness and being on guard. Because we don't have to be on guard for the destruction of the temple. We have to be on guard for his coming at the end of the age. For these things, the destruction of Jerusalem... That generation would witness Jesus, give de- Jesus gives details on what they're going to see. He tells you what the leaves are so you know uh, the, what's coming so that you can escape it when it nears. That's why he told them, so they could escape, so they could flee to the mountains. But when he speaks about that day and hour, meaning the return of Christ, he's actually ambiguous about the signs. And he says no one knows when. In the first instance, about 70 AD, he's informing them so that they would indeed know when it's about to happen and then they can act accordingly to save their physical lives by obeying his instruction, getting out of town. In the second instance, about the end of the age, he gives mysterious signs about his return so that they would simply know that it's near. They don't know when, they know that it's near, and then they could ready themselves to stand before the Son of Man. Thus, those signs tell us to act accordingly so that we can save not our physical lives like them, but our spiritual lives. And that is why he gives that exhortation to be on guard. He says, don't fall into drinking and dissipation. That's like drunken carousing, partying, that sort of thing. And Jesus says, don't let your heart be weighted down with the worries of this life. You're in the times of the Gentiles, this, tri- this period of great tribulation. Don't get distracted. Be on guard. What he is saying is, during this period, make your calling and election sure. He's telling them to prepare to face God. Prepare to stand before the Son of Man. That's what he said. By staying on alert and knowing that it could actually come upon them very quickly. It can come like a trap. 
And now, I know that it seems like it could take decades or even centuries still to set the stage for his return. And at, after that time, then, even if that did happen, then, the, then we would see the return of Christ approaching from far away, right? We're all in guard. But indeed, if we heed the words of Christ from this passage today, we very well may see it coming a mile away. But have we not seen in recent year, years just how quickly the world can change now? The end of the age could be here in very short order. Things can snowball incredibly rapidly. And Jesus wants us on our toes. That's his exhortations. He wants us rock solid in our faith that our sins are paid for by his blood. That we may be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You may wonder, as we spent so much time dissecting this passage and responding to the common misunderstandings of it, why did Jesus not simply explain that huge span of time? You know, he says that it's the, the, the times of the Gentiles. Why didn't he explain that between the judgment of 70 AD and the return of the end of the age, this, this times of the Gentiles, that's actually really long. You know, this is thousands of years. Why not just tell the church plainly that it's going to last thousands of years? Why didn't he do that? Well, it is because that timing is the secret will of God. And knowing that changes how we behave. It changes how we pray. It changes how we work. Jesus doesn't tell us that detail in order to prevent idleness in us. If the church in the centuries past, if you went to the church in 300 and you told them that Christ is not returning for hundreds and hundreds more years, then how motivated would they have been to advance the kingdom of God? If we knew for a fact now he wasn't going to return for another 500 years or another 1,000 years, whatever it may be, how would we respond? Be honest with ourselves. Can we honestly say that we would work just as diligently? Would our hearts be more easily weighted down with the worries of life, seeing as how the life to come is still far off? I dare say, yes, they would indeed more easily be weighted down. And thus the Lord was wise in keeping hidden that day and hour. He was wise in keeping, keeping hidden the length of the times of the Gentiles. Yet, by being ignorant of God's timing, we don't know what's going to happen, by being ignorant of it, it also means that we can stay on guard. As we stay on guard, as we remain alert at all times, as we make our calling and election sure, we can always live in eager anticipation. Because we don't know that day or the hour. Because we know it can come on us quickly like a trap. We will one day see the signs manifested. The signs of his coming could be manifested at any moment. And then one day we'll reach a tipping point where all of us collectively are going to look at one another and we are going to know the end is near. The leaves are on the tree. He's coming. So double down on your hope. Pray all the more for the strength to escape the tribulations that will take place. We're in the time of tribulation. They're going to take place. He tells us to pray for the strength to endure. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And in so doing, 
You will indeed have the strength to stand before the Son of Man, to stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in the white robes of his own righteousness and washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your guidance through this tricky chapter. Thank you for giving us an enduring clarity of what Christ prophesied and taught. We pray that that would resonate in our minds and we would just come to understand it more and more. If there is any error in our exegesis, then please lead us into correction. But this we are certain of, Lord. You brought days of vengeance upon the nation of Israel. You have inaugurated an extended period of Gentile inclusion into the new covenant so that we too may be blessed as the people of God. And we are likewise certain that you have promised that your son would return in power and great glory. Thank you for the instructions we needed to know exactly how we might save our souls through faith in Christ. We obey your imperative now by praying that we would keep on guard. Keep us alert at all times. Prevent us from falling into drunken revelries or from being weighted down by the worries of life. Give us the strength we need to escape the tribulations that will take place and to stand before our God and King, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Amen.